Friends, we just heard about the horrors of human trafficking. Young men and young women, most often, somebody's sons and somebody's daughters, somebody's brothers and somebody's sisters, being used and abused to make money for their oppressors. And we're grateful for the authorities who seek to execute justice on the criminals. And this morning, we're particularly grateful for ministries like VHTI and Blackwells who minister to the victims. But is there any hope that human trafficking will ever come to an end? The truth is, none of us... None of us experiences the kind of oppression that the victims of human trafficking experience. Most of us honestly can't even imagine it. But we have all seen the crushing pain of injustice, and many have felt it in other ways. Oppression takes many forms. Injustice comes in all sizes. It's always the powerful taking advantage of the weak. On the playground, it was the bullies, wasn't it? In the streets of the inner cities, whether here in America or all across the world, in villages, oppression takes the form of thugs and gangs and the mafia. In respectable society, it's the rich and influential using their powerful uh, power to benefit themselves at the expense of the weak. Unfortunately, oppression and injustice shows up in every sphere of life and in every proportion from very small to very grievous. Oppression and injustice shows, injustice shows up in your school, shows up in your workplace, shows up in our government, shows up in our neighborhoods. Sometimes it even shows up in our own families. So the question that we're considering this morning is how should we respond to oppression? Is there ever any hope that it will come to an end. Friends, Psalm 9 gives us the answer. Please take your copy of God's Word, turn to Psalm 9. Zach has already read this psalm for us. I will not read all of it again right now, though I will read all of it as we go throughout this sermon. Psalm 9 is a psalm of confidence. That gives hope in the Lord, who is a stronghold for the oppressed and the avenger of the afflicted. My prayer this morning is that we will all learn how to respond so that our Lord is glorified. Now, what's interesting about Psalm 9 right off the bat this morning, is that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 might have originally been one psalm. Psalm 9 feels self-contained. If you read it this week, I hope that you did. 
Psalm 9 feels contained, but there are so many links in Psalm 10 that make it feel connected, as if Psalm 10 is part two of Psalm 9. For example, just take a look there at your Bibles. Psalm 10 has no inscription. Do you see that? Every psalm that we've seen so far has an inscription, and all of them will in the book one of the psalms, all the way through 41, every one of them are going to have an inscription except for two, Psalm 10 and Psalm 33. And both of those seem like they're related to the previous psalm as if they're part two or an extension of it. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 have many, many similar themes and similar words throughout. If you read Psalm 10 this week, you'll find out that both Psalm 9 and 10 are about the poor, mentioned three times, the afflicted, mentioned two times, the oppressed, mentioned two times. Both have the wicked in view, mentioning the nations six different times as the enemy who oppresses the poor and the afflicted. Both of these psalms call for judgment six times against the enemies, which includes the wicked being caught in their own schemes. Both 9 and 10 talks about that. And both of them end, very interestingly, by asking the Lord to put man in his place. One commentator Van Gemeren highlights something that's not visible in the English. Those of you who are Hebrew scholars picked up on it, I'm sure. I didn't. I know about the Hebrew alphabet, but I read my English Bible. And what is not visible in English is that Psalm 9 is an acrostic poem. It goes from Aleph to Kaf in the Hebrew alphabet, and then Psalm 10 picks up and goes from Lamed through Tau. That might feel like a slam dunk. Well, then, of course, they're together if one is half of the alphabet and the other is the other half. But unfortunately, there are missing letters and uh, it's not complete. But it sure does make a lot of sense, especially given the thematic um, similarities and the no inscription. So in my personal opinion, for what that's worth, <laughs> Psalm 9 and 10 are connected, but they both stand alone. And therefore, throughout church history, we have called them to stand alone by giving them uh, different titles. Psalm 9 is the king's confidence in the Lord who avenges the oppressed. Psalm 10 is the cry of the oppressed, asking the Lord why he's so distant and why he doesn't seem to be doing anything. So they go hand in hand. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. We'll discuss Psalm 9 this morning. Psalm 10 next week, I would encourage you to come back and join us. Well, as we have discussed throughout our series so far in the book of Psalms, the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry can sometimes be quite intricate. It's beautiful, but it can be quite intricate. This week, as you were reading Psalm 9, did you recognize the parallelism 
as you went through? Did you? I began to pick up on different themes, and because I'm really visual, I immediately started to organize them on my paper, and I color-coded everything. You, if you know me, you know this would be a, a normal thing. And so there on the uh, left part of the screen is what my page looks like. And on the right side of the screen was what I found. A chiastic structure of parallelism where the first part of the psalm, Psalm uh, 9, verse 1 through 12, is David's praise. And then the last part is David's prayer, 13 through 20. David praises the Lord, and then David prays to the Lord. And within each of those halves, 1 through 12, 13 through 20, there are five specific sections, and they are parallel. You can go, and uh, maybe I'll make this slide available to you by email a little bit later. You can pick up on it. But in verse 1 and 2, David praises the Lord, and then his enemies are thwarted by the Lord. The enemies come to an end, but not the Lord. And Israel is not forsaken by the Lord. And so David, the king, calls for Israel to praise the Lord. And then in mirror image, parallelism, he goes through the same thing in his prayer. The last half, David prays to the Lord. He prays about the nations, the enemies, being thwarted by the Lord. The wicked, the enemies, coming to an end. And the needy not being forgotten. And so his final prayer to the Lord comes at the end of that section. The result, after I took a, a look at that structure, again, maybe not something that we would get if we just read, but something that we would get a little bit if we spent some time with this and began to recognize the, uh, the various themes repeating throughout. What I figured out was that Psalm 9 is this, King David begins with praise and ends with prayer because he's confident that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and the avenger of the afflicted. King David begins with praise, ends with prayer. And both his praise and his prayer are based on his confidence that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and the avenger of the afflicted. Now, in their situation, they're in Israel. Their experience of injustice and oppression was not so much human trafficking, not necessarily what we might be uh, experiencing an injustice or oppression, but their experience is shown throughout Psalm 9. Look at Psalm 9. In, in verse 4, this is King David praising the Lord and praying. He has a cause that God is maintaining. In verse 13, there are people who hate him. David is experiencing this oppression and this injustice personally, and yet he's also experiencing as the king of his kingdom, the poor and the needy in his kingdom. Five times 
the oppressors, those who are um, dealing in injustice, are called the nations. So the oppression that they were experiencing was national oppression. Look at verse 6. And so it's quite logical that, the, that God's judgment would be, in verse 6, against their cities. National oppression. National judgment. And it obviously involves some kind of violence because look at verse 12. He is the avenger of blood. And in verse 13, David prays that he would be uh, taken from the gates of death. And so in that particular context, this was national oppression that involved real, significant, obvious violence, which involves blood and death. And it's being done, perpetrated against, look at verse 18, the needy, the poor. And if we link Psalm 10 to it, which is not necessary, but I think highly likely, if we link Psalm 10 to it, it gets even more specific in describing the kinds of oppression that was going on at the occasion with which, for, uh, about which these two psalms were written. In Psalm 10, the poor are the helpless and the fatherless in the villages and remote places in the kingdom. In verse 2, the wicked are hotly pursuing the poor with, verse 3, greed and deception, verse 7. What's going on? Verse 1, the poor and afflicted feel like God is distant, doing nothing about what's happening to them. Verse 11, even hiding his face from their plight in, verse, in Psalm 10, verse 11. So there and then, King David and the people of Israel experienced national affliction that was physical. Nation against nation, people against people, real physical blood and death involved. Well, for the church of Jesus Christ, in all times and all places, the church of Jesus has certainly, around the world, experienced real physical persecution and oppression, has it not? Blood has been shed. Violence has been enacted against the church of Jesus, the kingdom of God on earth, just as it was then. For us personally, maybe you're not experiencing real physical oppression or injustice. But that doesn't mean we don't experience oppression and injustice. That, mean, that does not mean that we're not experiencing the affliction that this psalm is speaking to. Because we experience every day the affliction of our sin. We experience the oppression of death and disease. And while they're not necessarily face-to-face, nation-to-nation, they are just as real. The affliction is just as painful. The oppression is just as difficult on a spiritual level. King David is going through this personally. Are you experiencing oppression, affliction, 
injustice personally right now? There's hope for you here. But if your life is quite peaceful and you're not feeling any of these kinds of things, I think it's really important that King David is also feeling this for those around him. King David is agonizing for the people in his kingdom. King David is using his own experience to give them counsel. To encourage them in the midst of their affliction. And friends, what a tremendous ministry for each of us. Look, if life is hard, there's hope here. If your life happens to be easy right now, I hope that you love your brothers and sisters enough to bear their burdens and give them hope and encouragement through godly counsel. Psalm 9 is for us, and the message of Psalm 9 teaches us how the godly respond to oppression. The godly response begins with praise, ends with prayer, and both are based on the confidence that our Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and the avenger of the afflicted. So even before we get more into this sermon, I think a good question would be for us this morning, is our response to affliction, praise and prayer, based on confidence in the Lord? Or is our response to the afflictions that we experience more like whining and complaining based on what we see and experience? Well, let's be instructed and encouraged from Psalm 9 this morning. Look at it with me, please. A godly response to oppression begins with praise. Is that surprising to you? A godly response to oppression and affliction and injustice that he's experiencing and that is in his kingdom affecting his friends, begins with praise. Read verse 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And then the chiastic structure brings it back down where he ends with that same praise in verse 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the people of Israel. He's talking to those who are being oppressed. He's talking to the poor and the needy and the afflicted. He says, I'm praising the Lord. You should praise the Lord. Look at verse 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, 
For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Godly response begins with praise. Notice that David's response is intentional. I suggest supernatural, not natural. Why do I say intentional? Verse 1 and 2, there are five I will do this verbs. Intentionality. Here's how I'm going to respond to affliction. I will. The I will is an intentional response, not what happens naturally, but it's the response of faith. This is what it looks like to live the Christian life, to fight the Christian fight, to walk with God in the midst of a very broken world that is full of injustice and affliction and oppression. It's the I will exercise faith right now rather than being controlled by what I feel. Five I will verbs in verse 1 and 2. I will give thanks while the affliction is still going on. I will recount the Lord's wonderful deeds because the past fuels my present faith. Number three, I will be glad. Glad even in the midst of bad. I will exalt in the Lord, to exalt, not a word that we often use, but to exalt is not to exalt, it's to exalt, to fill my mind with the truth of God, which raises my perspective and my emotions above my circumstances. I will tell myself the truth about who God is and what God does so that my faith controls me rather than my feelings. I will exult in the Lord. In verse 5, uh, pardon me, in number 5, I will sing praises. The end of verse 2. And then he, t- he takes his singing of praises and he says, Okay, everyone, people of Israel, you sing praises too. Because that's the beginning of a godly response to affliction and oppression. Sing praises. Verse 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Do you see him raising their perspective? I know it's bad here. I know it feels like the enemy is on the throne, but he, the, he, they're not. He, God, is on the throne. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Do you see the parallelism there? For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. William Plummer says, Public mercies call for public praise. Secret praise for public mercies is not enough. God's people are to sing because that fuels our hope. John Calvin says about this, the deeds of the Lord are not celebrated as they deserve unless the whole world is filled with the renown of them. God's people, even in the midst of oppression and injustice, sing praise to the Lord. And notice 
that both of these, 1 and 2, 11 and 12, are centered on recounting and telling the wonderful deeds of the Lord. See that in 1? And then again in 11, recount all your wonderful deeds. Verse 11, tell among the peoples his deeds. What David doing here, uh, what David is doing here is he is recounting the deeds of the past that remind us of who God is and what God has done and can do in the present. The Psalms are full of remember, do not forget. And God's people are to remember and do not forget the wonderful deeds of the Lord because history, the history of the world is the history of the wonderful deeds of the Lord rescuing and redeeming his people from their enemies. God's done it before. He'll do it again. That's the first response in times of affliction. I will praise the Lord. And what does he praise about the Lord? Specifically, who the Lord is. Take a look again at verse 1 and 2, 11 and 12. Who is God? Verse 1, God is the Lord. That's all caps. Remember, that is the covenant name of Jehovah or Yahweh, the self-sufficient covenant God of Israel. Who is God here? Verse 2, the Lord is most high. Verse 11, the Lord sits enthroned in Zion. Verse 12, the Lord is the avenger of the afflicted. And that's the focus of Psalm 9. That the Lord is the avenger of the afflicted. What does that mean that he is the avenger of blood or the avenger of the afflicted? That means that God hates violence. God executes judgment against those who shed innocent blood. God hates evil and God hates wickedness. And from the first blood shed by Cain to the blood of Christ shed by the hands of wicked men to the blood of the martyrs shed by the enemies of the cross, the blood of the innocent cries out for the justice of God. And God will avenge the blood of the innocent. The divine avenger is, what does it say in verse 12? Mindful of the poor and afflicted in those remote villages. The divine avenger, what does it say in verse 12? Does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Powerful, isn't it? 
The afflicted are the poor and the weak, the helpless and the humble. Van Gemmeren reminds us that they are overwhelmed by their sense of need and inability to deal with their situation. But the covenant Lord does not forget the atrocities suffered by the poor who depend on him for their daily existence. The righteous judge of the universe will vindicate the blood of the innocents. He cares about the cry of the afflicted. Godly response, according to Psalm 9, begins with praise for who God is and what God has done and will do. According to Psalm 9, the second half, the the godly response to oppression ends with prayer. Now, that's pretty much the opposite of what I do when I'm afflicted. You? I usually pray first, and then at some point in the prayer, get around to praising. But David flips that on its head for us. He says, praise God for who he is and what he has done. Tell of his wonderful deeds throughout all of history, because that will fuel your prayer of faith. In coming to the Lord, who is the stronghold of the oppressed and the avenger of the afflicted. The godly response to oppression ends with prayer. Look at verse 13 through 20. The second half of this psalm. The second half starts with prayer and ends with prayer. Again, there's that parallelism going on there. Verse 13 and 14, David prays. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. And then he ends, verse 19, Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. In this last section, David opens the prayer. Be gracious to me. But notice why. Did you catch that? Why does David want God to be gracious to him? Verse 14. So that he can praise the Lord before God's people. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Oh God, I'm being oppressed There's injustice happening. Be gracious to me so that I can go to the gates of Zion and praise your name before the people. Let me put your glory on display as a stronghold for the oppressed, the avenger of the afflicted. God, I want to shout your praises to your people. 
His desire is not purely for himself. It is that God will give him grace so that he can glorify him to others. And notice the contrast between the gates in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13, David says, Oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death? This affliction feels like death. Or, in their case, death was happening through the violence and, 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 and bloodshed of the innocent. The gates of death? So that I can praise you where? In the gates of the daughter of Zion. Friends, that's, that's the gospel right there. God has taken us from the gates of death so that we can praise him in the gates of our home, in the gates of our city, in the gates of our world. The godly response to oppression ends with prayer. And so David brings it back down to a closing final prayer. The closing prayer, verse 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord. Arise. And do what? Put man in his place and cause him to fear. (laughs) The wicked, the enemies of your people who seem so powerful, who seem so strong, show them who's stronger so that they fear. The ultimate goal of judgment is that God might be glorified and that man might worship. David prays for justice so that God will be shown as God and man will be revealed as, what's the phrase at the end of verse 20? But men, merely little tiny grasshoppers. Van Gemmeren's right here too. This is not a psalm of, it's not an imprecatory psalm. He is not calling down curses on the enemy. There's not a a sense of, of venom in David's prayer here. Ultimately, he wants... God to be glorified so that man will fear him. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the first step toward salvation. David wants the nations to be saved by seeing the justice of God worked out. And that's exactly what happens anytime God acts in justice. The poor, the needy, God's people have a greater hope. And whether now or later, the wicked will have a greater fear. A godly response to oppression begins with praise, ends with prayer, and it's all based on something. The confidence that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and the avenger of the afflicted. Psalm 9 exists to give me and you that kind of confidence. God is not distant. God is not doing nothing. 
whether it's you going through difficulty or whether your kids or your neighbors or your country's going through difficulty. He is a stronghold for the oppressed and the avenger of the afflicted. And I want you to notice one more small detail that I think is worth mentioning. If you read each one of those sections that sort of support the praise and support the prayer, the enemies are always mentioned first, then what the Lord does. It's interesting. But I think it's right. Not just because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it helps our human response. Because when we experience difficulty, the first thing that we see and feel is the enemy. But faith looks beyond what we see and feel to greater realities. And we can be confident that our Lord is a greater reality than these enemies. But it doesn't feel like that when we're going through it. And so the structure of this chiasm, David bases his praise and his prayer on three confidences. Let me give those to you briefly. Three confidences that make up the substance, the middle part of each half of Psalm 9. Confidence number one. Here's the confidence that David and God's people can have. Number one, your enemies will be thwarted because the Lord upholds justice. Look at verse 3 through 5. When my enemies turn back, they stumble, they perish before your presence for you. See, enemies first. Why? For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever. David is confident that the enemies will not win. They will be thwarted because the Lord will act in justice. He, in his prayer, does the exact same thing. Look at verse 15 and 16 in his prayer. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. Why? Because it was such a stupid pit that they fell into it? No, it was a brilliant pit. The net that they hid, their foot has been caught. Why? Super obvious, dumb nations? No. Verse 16. Why did they fall in the pit? Why did their own schemes come back to judge them? Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Selah. Isn't that good? Here's the confidence that you and I can have, friends. Your enemies will be thwarted because the Lord upholds justice. That may not happen the same day. It might only happen in the end, but the Lord will always uphold justice. Confidence number two. Your enemies will come to an end, but 
The Lord and his people endure forever. Will this ever end? Yes. You know why? Because all injustice and sin and oppression comes to an end. All the wicked will come to an end, but not God and not his people. That's the kind of confidence that we can have. Look at verse 6 through 8. Look at 6 through 8. In his praise, in the first half, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their city you rooted out. Their, the very memory of them has perished. But, not you, Lord. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Oh man, these enemies feel so powerful, so entrenched, so established. This is never going to end. They feel permanent. Oh. God's permanent. They're momentary. They're temporary. They will come into an end because God will bring them to an end, friend. Look at his prayer, supported by the same truth. Verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. They forget God, they will be forgotten. Morrison says, it's delightful to know that the reign of evil will not be everlasting. However long it may be permitted to exist, it will cease. And the reign of peace and truth and righteousness shall be everlasting. This is not all there is. There is a new kingdom under King Jesus coming. Confidence number three. The kind of confidence that causes you and me to be able to praise and pray. Praise first and pray second. Confidence number three. Our Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He will never forsake his people. Never. You have the Bible to promise that. You've got God's word on it. Look at verse 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. Why? The end of verse 10. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. We put our trust in the Lord because he never forsakes his own. David's prayer, the second half, is supported by the same truth. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. The needy shall not always be forgotten. I know you feel forgotten. I know you feel like God is distant in this terrible difficulty or injustice that you're experiencing. But the needy shall not be forgotten, 
And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Turn those positive, and it tells us that the God will always remember the needy. And the hope of the poor is everlasting. Look there in verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold. What does that mean? A stronghold is a fortress in a high place. Almighty fortress is our God. Because we have the right man on our side. When we read Psalm 9, we see King David praising and praying because of his confidence in his covenant God. And we know that this is a sure promise for us because we have the greater King David, the Lord Jesus Christ. King Jesus is both the afflicted and the avenger of the afflicted. Jesus is the divine warrior who has heard the cry of his people who are oppressed by sin and death. These are the great enemies that we have. Your neighbor is not your biggest enemy. The greatest enemies that we have are sin and death. And he has heard the cry of his people. He has entered into our affliction in order to save us from these enemies. And ultimately, the divine warrior, the divine avenger of the afflicted, will bring both of our enemies, sin and death, to an end by judging them. Friends, that's our hope. When you experience the affliction of sin, which as a child of God, we experience every day, don't we? Jesus sees. He hears. And just as Jesus, while he was on earth, saw and heard the cries of the physically deaf and blind and lame and paralyzed, here's the gospel. Jesus has compassion on us when we are blind to spiritual realities, when this world fills our view, when, when we are deaf to God's truth because the deceptive voices of our culture are just so loud. Jesus has compassion on us when we're lame in our ability to walk in righteousness because our desires are broken. Jesus has compassion on us when we're paralyzed by our sinful addictions. He's not angry with you, Christian. He takes pity on you because he sees the affliction and the oppression of sin. He hears our cries. And just as verse 16 says, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment through his cross. The Lord Jesus Christ brings an end to sin 
through his righteous life and through his atoning death. We can have confidence that sin is thwarted because Jesus has fulfilled justice through the sacrificial atonement of the cross. He was condemned so that we can be justified. It's finished. There's no more condemnation. We can have confidence that sin will come to an end. But the Lord and his people will endure forever. Sin will come to an end. Not today, but it's coming to an end as God sanctifies us, is it not? But there is coming a day when it will be banished from the kingdom of God forever. Did you notice how the enemies are blotted out and forgotten? Man, friends, the names of the sin that oppresses you are on the list of enemies that will be blotted out forever. Pride or greed or wrath or, or lust or envy or laziness or gluttony, they are on the list of enemies that will be done and forgotten forever because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can live in that victory today. You can praise God and pray in the midst of the affliction of sin. So people of Christ, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people of his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of you. He does not forget your cry in affliction. Listen, friends, King Jesus sees and hears us when we're oppressed by the enemy of disease and death. He hears the pain that you experience. He hears the cry of those who have been diagnosed. He is a stronghold for you. Now, our stronghold does not promise health in this life. We live under the sun where everything has been cursed. But our stronghold promises that we can trust him in it and to be delivered from it in the new heavens and the new earth. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But we know because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it was not just defeated by him and for him, but it has been defeated by him for us. We now have eternal life. And so 1 Corinthians says death is swallowed up in victory. Death has no more sting. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we face disease and death, we can pray to the Lord with confidence because Jesus has already delivered us from its power. We might experience the uh, oppression, but we've been delivered from the power. We can pray along with David here. Be gracious to me, O Lord, 
who lifts me up from the gates of death so that I may recount all of your praise in the gates of Zion. And can I just pause for a moment to speak to those of you who are currently struggling with disease, especially older Christians? What an opportunity you have to recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord so that those who are younger, those who are still healthy, know that they can praise and pray to the God who is the avenger of the afflicted as well. Friends, my prayer is that we will learn how to respond to affliction and oppression, not just for our own good, but for God's glory in us and through us. Let's pray together. Lord, you are to be praised this morning because of who you are and what you have done, especially what you have done to deliver us from the affliction of sin and the oppression of death. We praise you for the gospel of King Jesus. And we pray that you would please fuel our faith with the kind of confidence that we see here in Psalm 9. Fuel our faith so that we constantly come to you as a stronghold, knowing that, that you have already won the war even while we still fight the battle daily. May you be glorified in us and through us, for it's in Jesus, the right man on our side's name. Amen. Amen.